0: Whatever kind of night you're having, start it off right with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. Whether you're mixing up a bullet bourbon old-fashioned for a cozy night in, or Kettle One Bloody Mary bar for a birthday brunch, you can get the perfect beer, wine, and spirits for any occasion delivered with Drizzly. So what's it gonna be? Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com to choose your drinks today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Is your wallet lighter than usual after a fun-filled summer? A little cash can go a long way, which is why the Chime checking account has tons of benefits you'll love, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today. Get started at Chime.com slash fee-free. Chime is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members F E I C. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started.
1: Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And as Orioles spring training winds down, we have a lot of things to discuss today, including the announcement of a new training academy in the Dominican Republic, uh, some rule changes that are taking place for the 2021 minor league baseball season, and MLB pipeline unveiling its MLB farm system rankings and placing the Orioles' fifth overall in baseball. So we'll get to that in this show, but first... On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, thank Mercer. Um, as I noted at the top of the show, the Orioles made a big announcement this week, which is that they will be constructing a 22.5-acre training academy in the Dominican Republic. Uh, construction is expected to begin sometime this summer and take 12 to 16 months, meaning we could see it uh, sometime in 2022. There's a lot to this complex, but the big takeaway is really from the player development aspect of this, which is the Orioles now taking their international efforts a step further than simply signing players and investing in a major facility upgrade um, in the Dominican Republic that when this facility opens, it's not going to be unique necessarily. A lot of other teams have made this type of investment but it will certainly be state-of-the-art. So, Nick, I'll start with you. What's your reaction in this news, and what do you think it says about the Orioles' international signing efforts?
0: I think this thing is huge. It's, it's really unbelievable. Uh, when we saw that announcement the other, or yesterday, um, really going from having virtually no presence whatsoever on the international scene to open up this massive facility in such a short amount of time, and we're talking about, what, just over two years into the Michael Ash regime now? I mean, you can't just scout the SEC in the Pac-12. And find success. You've got to go overseas, uh, or you've got to go down south. Um, I think a lot of people have questioned this rebuild process, or certain aspects of the rebuild process. Uh, but you know, this isn't like a I don't know, like a mid-major college basketball team where you bring in one big transfer and suddenly you move up the rankings. Uh, it doesn't work like that. So um, you know, it's going to take a couple of years to develop that, that international presence build that farm system up with quality depth uh, and work with this, these guys that are already in the system uh, with this new training development techniques. But I think this is a massive step. Like um, the most important thing for me when I'm thinking about this is that it so it shows those kids in the Dominican, just how serious the Orioles are. You show them the artificial turf, brand new equipment, everything else that goes on with this facility. Uh, they see how serious the Orioles are fans. We now see how serious the Orioles are about this. Um, you know, I think I can't speak to other organizations, but I know like the Padres do a really good job of teaching the, the Spanish-speaking prospects English and English-speaking prospects Spanish. So, you know, when those guys go up to like Fort Wayne, Indiana for A-ball, they're not completely alone. Uh, and hopefully we see stuff like that with the Orioles now. But um, yeah, I think this is this is great. Michael Hernandez and Samuel Basalo are just the start.
2: Yeah, that's couldn't have said it better than Nick said. I mean, this is pretty gigantic. Um, I guess we now know where all the money uh, is going that uh, we've been penny pinching on a few other areas, but I'm sure this is expensive. But to me, it's about a three-step process. There's like three great things about it. It's number one, a great recruiting tool for when we're continuing to sign these players year after year. Um, Number two, it's just obviously a great place to improve their skills and develop the players. And three, it just shows a big sign of commitment to the fan base, to to the people that we're trying to reach down there. But to me, like this is something that will be here while Elias is here. It'll be here after Elias is here. So this tells me that the Orioles will be in the international market for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah, I think we can really kind of turn the page on the discussion about the Orioles international signing efforts um, if you hadn't already after Hernandez and Masayo signings earlier this year, which is turn the page now from are they finally going to get involved in the international markets to just how far they're going to go. And I, I was optimistic when Michael Elias came in and he brought in Kobe Perez that they were going to take steps forward. But if you had told me at the end of 2018 beginning of 2019 uh, before the start of the 2021 season the Orioles will commit over 5 million in signing bonuses as part of their international free agent class and they're going to announce the construction of a 22 and a half acre training facility in the Dominican Republic I don't know that I would have believed you and yet here we are. Yeah,
2: it's yes. amazing. It's unbelievable. It truly is. And it's only been 3 years, so it's crazy. Yeah,
0: I don't I don't think I think a lot of people did make a big deal out of this yesterday, you know, on like social media and stuff. But I don't know if we truly understand just how impactful this can be. Like the Orioles were not players on this scene. And now you've got all the big, shiny, fancy new tools and toys and kids are going to want to use them. So come on down to Baltimore.
2: Absolutely. I think we're really going to look back in like five years time and think how big a moment this is, actually.
1: Yeah, I thought, saw something interesting. I thought this was worth noting on the air. Uh, Dan Connolly over at The Athletic had an article yesterday, and he noted that Kobe Perez had pointed out that while this is big for player development, it's also helpful to players who are already in the system that are from the Dominican Republic and reside there in the offseason because they will now have a place to go um, to train under supervision of Orioles staff. Players that live in Florida can go to Sarasota and kind of have that experience as a training complex there. But now players are in the Dominican Republic are going to have a facility that's on par, maybe even better than what's in Sarasota and have that supervision over the offseason. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. It's, it's safe, too. It's a safe place that these kids and these younger prospects can go to. And I think I, – actually, you mentioned that. Uh, I think it was JC and on Instagram yesterday. Was He was sharing that on Instagram. He looked pretty excited because he knows he's going to be able to use that facility, too, in the offseason.
1: So certainly big news from the Orioles this week. Going back to uh, on-field matters now, um, this is not official at the time that we're recording this. We're actually recording on Wednesday night. But the speculation earlier this week uh, was that Chris Davis is probably going to be placed on the 60-day DL to start the season with a back injury. Um, this has been sort of an issue that has is hung over the Orioles off, off camp, which is Davis' health. And while it's not official, it's looking likely that he could start the season on the 60-day DL, which not only means that he will not be on the field, but the Orioles would now have an extra 40-man roster spot as long as Davis is on the 60-day DL. Uh, Sorry, injured list. Um, So, Bob, starting with you. um, First off, are you surprised by this at all? And then, what do you think the Orioles lineup will look like if Davis does start the year on the injured list?
2: Well, for that last part, I don't think it'll be any different. I don't think Chris Davis is really vying for a starting job or much playing time. But I'm a little bit surprised. It's kind of weird. We just we haven't heard like any specifics at all. It was the first day, first game of the year. He gets two at bats and then he leaves with a back injury, and that's pretty much all they've ever said since then. And now that he's gonna be on a sixty day DL, it's or IL, like you said. Um it's, something is weird about it. I don't know if they came to like a mutual agreement that this is how they're just gonna handle his last two years. Uh I don't know. There's just something strange about it. But obviously if it's a real significant injury, I hope he's better. But it's just it's super strange. And I think once DJ Stewart recovers from his hamstring, I think he might ultimately be the guy that benefits the most from this. And Mike Petriello says he's the next Juan Soto. So that would be a great thing for the <laughs> Orioles.
0: Uh, that's a great point about DJ Stewart. I think he's deep down, he's, he's maybe a little bit relieved, but yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but I, I kind of hope this is it with chris davis um i'm tired of the chris davis talk it's an easy way to get some likes on your tweets and clicks on your articles uh but it's it's just old i mean we know i think i was for a while i just felt sad it was sad to watch him go through this and now it's just like like this resentment towards him like please leave uh open up the spot for somebody else you've got your money just walk uh we don't know what's going on behind the scenes i don't know how serious his injury is if it is serious, I, I hope he's okay. I hope he gets better soon. And if he wants to keep playing baseball, I hope he gets that opportunity. But maybe this is finally it. you know. And maybe this gives someone like a Tyler Wells a better chance to, to earn a roster spot. Uh, if you want to add another pitcher, uh, maybe Wade LeBlanc just finally got a job as well. Um, especially if you see like DJ Stewart and Chris Davis uh, start the season on the I.L., um, you know, I think it's going to be important to watch the waiver wire. I imagine Michael Elias, if DJ Stewart starts the year on the IL as well, then I think you're going to see a move made probably in the next week or so, uh, or as rosters get set, you know, Michael Elias has been pretty successful in some waiver claims. So I think that happens. Uh, but, you know, if it is just a 60-day IL stint and Davis is back, but by that time Diaz and McKenna are raking down a AAA Norfolk and they're challenging for a roster spot, maybe Tyler Nevin's playing well. Like, does that force the Orioles' hand to just go ahead and make a move and move Chris Davis off the roster completely? So, I don't know.
1: Yeah, Chris Stoner, uh, who's the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life, has made the point several times, I think, over at the warehouse and then in his articles on the website that if Chris Davis' time as an Orioles is going to come to the end, that's on the Orioles to make that decision and not Chris Davis. And I wholly agree with Chris on that. And there's going to come a time, years a few years from now where I think we're going to look back on Chris Davis, a fuller picture of what he actually meant to the Orioles. But it's clear for now that when you're in, you find yourself in a situation where Davis is hurt and you're like, okay, well, who's this going to open a roster spot up for because coming into spring training, we were thinking, well, is DJ Stewart, Tyler Wells, some of these type of players going to get hurt because Chris Davis is taking up a roster spot and the Orioles might only use him on a limited basis this year. And they just can't move him because of the contract.
2: Yeah, I think they just kind of need I completely agree with Chris Sterner on that as well. And I think they just need to bite the bullet. Uh, Maybe they could save a couple of dollars if whatever they missed time because of COVID. Or I just think at this point, our salary on our roster is so low that I think they just need to come to terms with it and let him go.
0: Yeah. I mean, thanks. Thanks for the memories when you were good. I mean, I, I have personal stories there with the Chris Davis era, you know, and like my brother and it was a huge Chris Davis fan. And I think Chris Davis was the guy who really got him back into baseball and really following Orioles baseball. And so like on a personal level, like that's something that we share now and that's awesome. And I'll always remember that, but it's, it's time to go. Uh, maybe this is it.
1: And we will certainly see what happens with Davis. Um, As I noted early on, it's not official that he will be on the 60-day IL as of when we're recording this on Wednesday, but it's looking like that could be the case. Uh, We do have a few minor league topics to get to tonight, including some rule changes that will be taking place, as well as MLB Pipeline's uh, farm system ranking for the Orioles this year. But first, we're going to actually take a listener question because we have a listener question for this show, and I'm going to let Bob read that.
2: Yeah, we got a question in from Chris Franz. He said he DM'd me and said, Bob, love the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate that. Uh, he said, potential on the verge discussion idea is no longer potential. It is happening. I keep thinking about a certain category of Oriole prospects, players who were a bit old for their level in 2019, but still showed promise. Players like Greg Cullen, Toby Welk, Easton Lucas, Gray Fenter, et cetera. How should they be handled? Promoted aggressively to maintain prospect status is there hurt for them or did the pandemic age them out of their chance? Uh, I just thought that was a really good question. And I thought I'd throw it to you guys, uh, see what you guys thought. I mean, I think that's a discussion that I've heard on a lot of
0: other shows, just with prospects in general. And I think it was Eric on when we had Eric Longenhagen on, I think he talked about that too. The, your college hitters, you know, from the 2019 draft are probably going to be, and maybe even 2018 draft, I think are going to be heavily impacted by the pandemic. Uh, not having that college season in 2020, not having a minor league season last year. And now this year, this minor league season being pushed back. Uh, But I think Cullen is an interesting name that we talked about before. I think that's a a valuable depth piece probably for the organization. Uh, But I imagine like Fenter, I think for breaking these guys down one by one, I think Fenter is a guy that they could probably move up pretty quickly. Uh, We've talked about that before. And I think a guy like Toby Welk is actually an interesting one because a D3 prospect who did show a lot of promise, uh, but now he's had this long layoff. I don't think they're going to be too aggressive with him. I think he kind of hangs back a little bit, but it's certainly fun to think about these guys and think about minor league assignments over the next couple of weeks because who really knows It's with everything that's going on.
1: Yeah, this is really going to be a challenging year to try to figure out not only where the players are assigned, but then how much leeway – should you apply to the too old for the level standard that we normally would have? Like if you, you know, normally I think if you looked at a guy like Toby Welk or Gray Fenter and you saw them in a ball this year, you'd say, well, they're too old for the level. We got to, you know, not really take any results seriously until they get to a higher level. This year, I do feel like things will be, you know, a little bit slower for a number of reasons. Cause I think pitchers aren't going to go as deep in the games, at least right away. Um, so that can impact a guy like Fenter if he is used as a starter. And then with Welk and, you know, you're just going to see what the layoff does to some of the hitters. So I, I think it's an interesting question. I'm curious to see how it's going to play out once the season actually starts. My hunt, and it's just a hunt, is that hitters will have a little bit easier time working their way back in than pitchers will. But I don't know that for sure. So but that, that's a good question because I think we're going to have... Yeah, you know, we're gonna to have to dissect early on in the minor league season. If a guy like Toby Welk does get off to a hot start, but it's at Del Marva, is it because Toby Welk is really good or he's he's just too advanced for that competition?
2: Yeah, it is it is very interesting. I feel like it's the guys that were missed twenty twenty completely. Like they didn't have time at the alternate site, they didn't get fall instructs, but I mean they still have something there couple of guys i was joey ortiz at the instructs because i think he's a guy that could kind of get caught in between mm-hmm. and uh, ofelki peralta who was already kind of old for his level i just feel like that's another guy that like what are they going to do with him did he improve did he what did he work on did he get better did a lot of these guys like he said i mean there's a good chance that they you know they were instructed by the orioles and they made improvements and they're continuing their development and they're on their way, but we just don't know. We just won't know until the games start. And I think it will say a lot where they start them and how quickly they move them if they have success. So it's, it'll definitely be yet another interesting reason to follow the minor league baseball season this year. Yeah. And I I was going to say, I don't think it's
0: at least the lucky part of this is like, it's not just Orioles specific issue. Like this is going to be a league wide issue. Is a lot of teams trying to figure this out. So we're all kind of playing on level playing field here. I think at least. Yeah,
2: that's a good point.
1: Yeah, and I think also with the pitchers, though, I'll be curious to see how they're brought along. You know, if a guy like Gray Fenter does pitch in relief this year, does the expectation come in that he now will move up the system faster? And really the same for Ophelke Peralta. If they move him to the bullpen, is that a way to move him up to the ladder faster or is it just a way to manage his innings?
2: yeah i feel like he's just going to get above high eh? <laughs> yeah yeah i've been i've been calling for him to move to the bullpen for years now so if this is what it takes this is what it takes
1: yeah so a good question there and if you're listening to this show you're actually watching it live feel free feel free to comment um on facebook or tweet at us and we'll try to get to your question while we're on the air um and if not we might hold it aside for a future episode if it still applies. But. uh Glad to answer any listener questions to come in. So moving on now to the minor league rule changes that are taking place this year. Major League Baseball is going to be experimenting with basically different use of equipment, different sort of rule changes at various levels of minor league baseball. And the one thing you're going to see is that not all of the rules apply. So, for example, there will be larger bases at the AAA level this year, and that will be all AAA leagues. Um, yet you have rules like the addition of the 15-second pits clock, which will only be used in Low A West, which is essentially the old California league. Um, as Keep in mind that minor league baseball was reorganized over the offseason, and a lot of the old leagues uh, really just now are named by their level and geography, and we may see names for them later, but When you hear me say low A West, that's essentially the old California league. And then Robo-UMPs will be uh, tested out at low A Southeast, which is essentially the old Florida State league. Now, those last two rules I mentioned are not going to affect the Orioles because they don't have affiliates in those leagues. But there's still some things in here that Orioles players are going to have to deal with. And I'll just uh, name one real quick before I turn over to Bob for this discussion is, Pickoff attempt limits will be at all low-A leagues, and this is coming from MLB.com article. This rule will limit pitchers to just two, quote, step-offs or pickoff attempts per plate appearance. On the third attempt, if the runner is not thrown out, the move is ruled a balk, and any runners are automatically awarded the next base. Depending on the preliminary results of this change, MLB will consider further reducing limitation to a single step-off or pickoff per plate appearance. So it's clear that MLB really wants to use minor league baseball this year to experiment with rule changes we could see down the line for better or worse. So Bob, looking through some of the rules that uh, maybe you've seen or that I just mentioned, did anything really stand out to you and how do you feel about MLB uh, pushing this for this year? Well,
2: first of all, I like the experimentation. I like that they're trying things. I mean, I, in all things equal I'd prefer if they did it kept it in the Atlantic League like they did last year but I understand moving it to the minors a little bit closer to major league baseball. I'm not so much a traditionalist. I think that the game can always be improved. Just try things and if they don't work go back to what you know was normal. And I like that they're not starting these experiments at the major league level. But the one that I'm I wish was affecting the Orioles in some way was the Robo umps the electric strike zone I just think that that's electronic strikes and that is inevitably going to be in major league baseball before long and would be nice if our guys could get a little bit of experience on that. And I think, you know, get the the call, right. The balls and strikes called, right. uh, You know, that's most important. Unfortunately for Adley Rushman, he's what, he's a great framer. He's great defensive catcher. So that is unfortunate, but I think ultimately that's the way it should be. The base sizes. I mean, I don't think that's going to make much of a difference. The pitch timer. Yeah, they're always trying to speed up the game. I don't know exactly how you can enforce that. Um, The only other one that is very interesting to me is the pickoff limit. I feel like you use that. That that could play some mind games and really mess with the strategy of the game. So that could be interesting. Yeah, I
0: think... I think the shift conversation we should also have. I'd be curious to know y'all's opinion about the shift thing, uh, or at least having four infielders on the dirt. But I think just kind of going through these real quick, yeah, like the new bigger bases, I mean, no one would have noticed that. I mean, you're talking about possibly the idea of maybe increasing more steals because it's a few inches shorter between first and second base, which you know is fine, more offense, sure. Uh, but I don't think that's going to really play a big part. I mean, it reduces the risk of injury, which is awesome but I guess it would make too much sense just to put like the second base to the right of the foul line, kind of like a softball type thing that makes too much sense. So major league baseball, of course, isn't going to do that. Um, but the stepping off the rubber is also interesting. I think if you're a left-handed pitcher in high a ball, you're probably pretty upset uh, you have to come completely off the rubber before you throw to first base. Uh, that could be, again, you're trying to increase steals, but I wonder if a lot of these rules seem to benefit the runners and first base and speedy runners. But at the same time, you mentioned the, the robo-umps. If catchers don't have to worry about practice pitch framing and working on that piece of their craft, they can focus on, you know, back attempts and stronger pop time, stronger arms, more accurate arm strength. So I'm wondering if those maybe if they're all implemented at the same time, do they kind of cancel each other out in the long run? Who knows? Um, the pitch clock, I absolutely love. I think you need to put it at every level of baseball. Uh, if you don't hit your time limit, it's a ball. Uh, you saw, I saw it a few times in minor league games over the last few years. Uh, it's Sometimes it's enforced, sometimes it's not. I think if you enforce it, though, it's a good thing. You know, you watch college baseball. I was at a, a local college game about two weeks ago. COVID's kind of shut it down recently around here. But um, I said, never take this site, never take this sounds for granted ever again. You're at a baseball field watching a real-life college baseball game, But by the fourth inning, I was pulling my hair out because every single pitch, the pitcher steps off the rubber, the batter's leaning on his bat because you got to do the coach, relays the signs in, you got to look at your wristbands, put the clock in, throw the pitch, let's play baseball. Um, I think that could actually shorten time, 10, 15 minutes probably per game. Uh, Who knows? Um, The auto strike zone with robo-umps, I mean, it's coming. I don't know if there's really any reason. I get like the human element, and I kind of like the idea of – you know some umpires maybe like the lower half of the zone a little more some like the upper half and you got to account for that but and-
1: so i think we lost Nick. okay so um we'll just continue on for the moment yeah. um i think this shift discussion is an interesting one because when i saw this rule i was a little confused why they decided to draw it up as the infielders have to keep their feet in the infield dirt rather than move to one side of second base or the other.
2: But um,
1: I'm wondering if it's going to make it easier to enforce, because that's been one of the things that you've heard is that, oh, if you try to ban the shift, it's going to be unenforceable. I personally have kind of mixed feelings on the shift, which I'll get into in a minute. But this is going to be interesting to watch, I think, which is, you know, does that requirement, uh, first of all, make it easier to enforce? But then secondly, still sort of allow a little bit of a shift but you no longer see situations where a line drive hits a shallow left or right field is an out because the second baseman happens to be standing there.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, my initial reaction to the, the attempts to limit the shift and all that is that it's bad. It's a bad idea. But if it's you know, I'm, I'm very interested to see how it plays out and see if it does help. You know, bring. The contact back, you know, hitting for average and shooting the gaps, and maybe Chris Davis could go resurrect his career in Double A or wherever they're instituting this rule. But that's the one I'm kind of interested in following the results the most, just out of curiosity. Maybe they can change my mind on it.
1: Yeah. So Nick <laughs> is back in now. We were just talking about the <laughs> infield shifts here um, and discussing sort of the differences between having the requirement that the infielders bases or the infielders feet be inside the infield dirt rather than the way it was enforced in the Atlantic league in 2019, which is that you can't have more than two infielders on one side of the bag at second base. So basically now infielders cannot move into the outfield as part of the shift.
0: Yeah, I think I caught the tail end of Bob's talk there. I'm interested as well to see like those people who are smarter than me when they go back and look at the data and can analyze it and put it into, you know, easier terms for us to understand, was this effective or not? Uh, I'm interested to read that research uh, because I don't really know how I ultimately feel about this. Um, I do think, though, you know, if everyone on social media just says, when when you're watching a baseball game, you see these shifts, you know, it's, well, just beat the shift, just bunt, just hit it the other way, beat the shift. It's that easy. I would think that if it's that easy, don't you think the Rays would have like figured this out by now? Like, That's a team that that has always been ahead of the curve. Uh, I feel like they would have figured out something by now. Teams, players would have figured it out by now. Um, I don't think they're going to change. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. So I actually don't mind having to stay on the dirt, at least for right now. Uh, as far as completely eliminating the shift, I don't know about all that, but it's going to be interesting to follow for sure.
2: Yeah, I do like the having to be on the dirt better than splitting the field up down the middle and you can't cross the invisible yeah. line. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because I was just saying a minute ago that I have mixed feelings on banning the shift. Um, and I do think that it may be playing into what we're seeing with more home runs in baseball now where the way to beat the shift is just to hit the ball over the fence. And that's sort of becoming the tactics that we're seeing to try to get around the shift, especially for players that do have a little bit of power. I've almost wondered if it would be better to take the shift and limit the number of times you could do it in a game. I don't know how you would define the shift. I don't know if it would be you know, infielders having their feet on the dirt or infielders on, you know, how many infielders are on one side of second base or if you limited it so that you had to be strategic about when do you used it and you couldn't just use it for the number seven hitter three times in a game because, well, the data says he's probably going to hit the ball to right field in this situation. So everyone sifts that way. I mean, it's,
0: it's interesting to think about. I mean... I don't don't really, again, I don't really know how I feel about this whole shift situation just because I get it. I mean, it's smart. You're using the data to your advantage. And look, if if it says DJ Stewart is going to hit the ball here 60% of the time, I'm putting a guy there if he can do it. But at the same time, you're also kind of limiting things. You know, it's these ground balls hit to the right fielder. Uh, You see Manny Machado for the Padres go out and play short right field all the time throwing guys out at first base. I mean, it's, it's boring. It gets boring. This I'm not saying like the three true outcome thing is necessarily destroying baseball, but I think these extreme shifts, every single play might be hurting a little bit. I mean, if you're a new fan to the game or a younger fan to the game and you, you rarely see guys on base, like how exciting is that? I mean, it's, we're starting to get into like soccer territory almost where we're going to play for 90 minutes and no one scores. Um, So I don't, Apologies to any soccer fans, but
2: <laughs> I feel exactly the same way as Nick. And I kind of fight myself on this topic all the time. Like I'm having a debate in my own head. like the you know, you can put anyone on the field that you want just because you use the data to your advantage. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, like you said, it's it's kind of does take a lot of the fun away from, you know, stretching doubles, singles into doubles and all that stuff and just putting the ball on the field and in play and letting stuff happen. so, yeah, I am I am conflicted, to say the least.
1: So before we move on, I do want to go back to the pickoff attempt. So that was something we had talked about earlier. Um, in either case, whether it's the basically limiting the number of pickoff attempts you can make before a runner is awarded second base or what they're doing at the high a level, as Nick mentioned, the step off rule where the left handed pitchers um, have to take their feet off the rubber to make a pickoff attempt. Um do you think it's actually going to lead to more steals? Because the only thing that I keep wondering is if steals are not a big part of the game at the major league level right now, our team's going to bother to try to develop that skill um, in the lower levels of the minors.
0: It could. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think just with the the two-pickoff rule in general, I think this is where I might have cut off when I was talking about it. Uh, yeah look, like you, you get two chances and that's it. And I think it creates another game within the game. And when I'm thinking about it, uh, um, you know, uh, you can't regulate maybe if just a toss over the most boring thing in, in any sport is when the pitcher just lazily tosses over to first base, just to get a few more seconds on the clock or whatever it may be. Uh, but then you turn into what's a toss over versus if you were to say, Hey, you have to make a legitimate attempt. If you throw over to first base or it's a buck, but then that becomes like a judgment call in a gray area, which we don't want. That's, kind of like a balk in general. And if anyone tells you they know what a balk is, they're lying because no one knows what a balk is. But, like, if I'm if I'm a runner and I know he's already – the pitcher's already used his two pickoff attempts on me, like, I'm turning into, like, Henry Rowengardner Gardner for rookie of the year over at first base. So that scene when he's just uh, making fun of the pitcher, that's what I'm doing. Like, I am dancing. I am moonwalking. Like, I'm doing anything I can to throw that pitcher off. And if I'm the hitter, like, I'm sitting fastball right over the plate because I know that pitcher is frustrated. He's got his mind elsewhere on that hitter. Uh, he's going to mess up. So I'm sitting fastball. And if he gives it to me, it's going over the fence. Uh, so I would like to think that maybe it, it does increase the steals, or at least it makes guys more aggressive. And, and I think
2: that's what Major League Baseball wants. And in that case, I agree with him. And I want to see that too. Yeah, agreed. And like you said, it could add a little bit of different strategy. Like kind of the runner on second and extra innings rule kind of pro- provided us last year and yeah you got to be taunting those guys left and right and just getting huge leads and just taking off immediately and then Maverick Hanley's going to show off his arm that he's been working at a drive line and gun you down anyway so yeah it, it's it's a lot of interesting stuff i mean this minor league season is going to be unlike any other
1: yeah the rule changes we noted are going to be something that uh We'll all have our eyes on, especially in the cases where they do apply the Orioles farm system. But I think we'll also be checking out Low A East to see how, or Low A Southeast, excuse me, to see how the robo-ump experiment there, yeah. works there. And the uh, Low A West for the uh, Pitts clock rule, now down at 15 seconds. So those will be interesting developments to follow over the course of the minor league season. Um, MLB Pipeline uh, has ranked the Orioles the fifth best farm system in Major League Baseball. Uh, if you listen to our episode th- two weeks ago, or sorry, three weeks ago, we went over top 100 prospects and we got a little bit into farm system rankings then, and our takeaway was the system is getting a lot better. And if you want an affirmation of that, I think MLB Pipeline's list does just that, uh, as it not only puts the Orioles fifth, but when you look at their overall top 30, which was also updated, um, some big changes. you know. Of course, Adley Rutzman's the number one prospect. But then some interesting developments. Uh, Heston Kerstad ranks third with D.L. Hall fourth and Ryan Mountcastle fifth. Kerstad usually ranks below Hall in some lists, including ours, below Hall and Mountcastle. But MLB pipeline is pretty high on him. Uh, then you have situations like Kyle Bradish. Uh, ranking 15th, and that's a player we're going to talk a little bit about because it's someone that we're going to be really interested to follow this year because we have not seen him pitch since he was acquired in Dylan Bundy trade before the 2020 season. But before we get into specific players, I'll just start with the MLB Pipeline ranking. Orioles coming in fifth. Now you have MLB Pipeline basically stating they're among the top five farm systems in baseball. Um Bob, I'll start with you. What's your takeaway from that?
2: You'd love to see it. I mean, once they came out and the Padres were number six, it's when you really started getting excited and you're like, what the heck is going on around here? You know. But then we were fifth, one spot higher than I thought we might have been. And yeah, it was awesome to see. I got a lot of love. It's a good thing Keith Law doesn't work over at MLB Pipeline. Um, Yeah, and they have an interesting list. I don't know. If uh, Joe tries to put it together completely or if the guys, um, Jim Callis, and I can't remember the other guy's name uh, helped out or they did it. I'm not exactly sure how they came up with this, but it's definitely interesting. And Kyle Bradish, in specific, I mean, you did hear a lot of good reports for, about him uh, at the alternate site last year. And, you know. Uh, obviously, the word is getting out to people that do these kind of lists, and it, like you said, it'll be super interesting to see where he starts. I think I uh, predicted he would start at AA Bowie, and if he does, then he'll be there with Grayson and D.L. Hall, and, and that'll be a freaking exciting rotation to watch. I think I was just shocked to see number five, uh, I was thinking
0: six, uh, it's cool to say the Orioles leapfrog a a organization like the Padres. Uh, but then you look back and you remember like the Padres traded for Mike Clevenger and Austin Nola, you Darvish, Blake Snell, uh, and they still have the number six system of baseball. So like if you weren't aware of just how good like CJ Abrams, Mackenzie Gore and Luis Camposano are, well, there you have it. I mean, that explains it. Um, but I think for the Orioles specifically, like it's fun and there's still a lot of room for growth and improvement in this farm system that we've talked about before. And so to be number five with still, I think, a ways to go in certain areas, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, there still needs to be a bigger presence internationally. Uh, Basalo and Hernandez are both in the top 30, which is great to see. Uh, and for us, you know, following the minor leagues, finally, getting a chance to watch minor league baseball this year, you know, there are seven guys in the top 30, not including Basalo and Hernandez, who have not played a professional game yet. Uh, so, you know, those guys could break out this year, could have hot seasons, and they get moved up list. Uh, they're held in, in higher regard, maybe. Uh, the Orioles have the the number five pick in the draft in three, four months, so you're going to have another top 100 prospect there most likely. Uh I listened. I don't know if you guys listened to Jim Callis and the crew, their latest MLB Pipeline podcast, where they talked about it. And he mentioned Jim Callis mentioned the direct correlation between World Series success and having the top-ranked farm system on their list. And I, he said this direct quote was: "Each of the last fourteen World Series champions had a top ten farm system in the five years leading up to their title, except the, 20, the 2006 Cardinals, which because he blamed the like, prospect is really uh, not grading Albert Pujols very high. Uh, But, and the 1997 Pirates uh, were the only team going back 40 plus years uh, to not make the playoffs uh, almost immediately following being ranked in the top, being ranked the top farm system in all of baseball, which the Orioles are trending towards. So, I mean, that's, that's promising. That's more hope
2: for the future. Yeah. It's going to be hard to overtake the Rays with their depth, but you know, Elias is going to do his best to get there.
1: Hey, and we have Wander Franco probably going to graduate here in the next few months. So maybe the Rays come down a little bit, which kind of pivots to the next point I was going to make about the Orioles, which is that when you look at MLB Pipeline's top 100 overall list of prospects in minor league baseball, five of them um, are Orioles. And I think only one of them will graduate in 2021. And that's Ryan Mountcastle, who comes into this season, with barely any rookie eligibility, the rest of that list—Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, Heston Kurstad, DL Hall—will probably all still have prospect eligibility heading into 2022. As Nick mentioned, you have the number five pick. That's probably another top 100 prospect. And given everything we're hearing about guys like Jordan um, Jordan Westbrook and Gunnar Henderson, there's reason to believe that there are players who are in the Orioles' farm system right now that will be top 100 prospects going into next year. And while that's not the sole criteria for moving up a farm system list, it helps a lot. When you look at the teams that are around the Orioles, you see a lot of top 100 prospects. The Orioles have five this year, um, including Rutzman, who ranks really high on the list at number two. So that that's something that's you know, definitely an area that's room to grow, and we're already seeing the Orioles grow there.
2: Not to mention... Rutschman will be the number one prospect in baseball as soon as Wanda Franco uh, graduates. So that certainly helps matters as well.
0: Yeah, I think internationally, we're already being connected to pretty highly ranked guys, uh, higher ranked than, you know, Basalo and Hernandez. And you see them in the top 30 of a top five farm system now in all of baseball. So it, over the next two years, if you start bringing those guys, maybe Mike Elias lands, you know, a top 100 international prospect. I got an international prospect who ranks in the top 100 overall not just a top 30 international guy, but we're talking about serious international talent here added to this pipeline. Uh, And if he continues, you know, I think we've got, we've got this year of a high draft pick. We've probably got next year as a high draft pick as well. So you're talking about another top 100 guy there, uh, probably another sec bat or hopefully a college pitcher. (laughs) We'll see if he decides to draft pitchers at any point over the next year or two. Uh, But yeah, I, I don't see why this farm system can't keep trending upwards. And these trades, you keep we joke about it a lot. Can you make a trade with the Rockies and the Mets? And hey,
2: who's, who knows who else we can get? Yeah, throw Jordan Lawler into our you know, into our prospect rankings, and, and we got plenty of upset.
1: Exactly. One of the things we wanted to do when talking about MLB Pipeline and their current assessment of the Orioles was to note their updated top 30 for the farm system and compare it to the one that we put together Earlier this year, we've kind of covered a lot of other top 30s on our show, and we've covered our own. But given that I think this is probably the last major top 30 we're going to see between now and the start of the season, um, it's a good time to take a look at a list like this and compare it to what we have. And Nick, uh, I believe you crunched some numbers and came up with a few interesting takeaways.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a few guys who were – at the top of the list, I think it's pretty standard across most lists. You're going to have Grace Rodriguez, your, your DL Halls, Kerstad. I mean, I guess if you want to go like kind of break it up by chunk and look at the top 10 or so, um, you know, Heston Kerstad being a little bit higher on their list was interesting, I thought. Uh, but again, if if you look at that power and ceiling, I think places like MLB Pipeline, they really like those, you know, the college bats, the, the more advanced uh, prospects. And so when you got that power tool, I could see why they probably move uh, curse that up a little bit um, but two guys interesting they had Jordan Westbrook three spots higher than we did we have number 10 MLB pipeline has him at number seven uh, and Yusniel Diaz was three spots lower we had him at seven they had him at 10 I think that's the at the top of the list those are the two names that jump out to me the most and after we've had Eric Logenhagen and Eric Fast on both not speak so highly of Yusniel Diaz uh, and I think not putting words in their mouth not at trying to assume too much, but I think they held back a little bit on their true feelings about Diaz. And that has me worried just a little bit. I don't know about you guys, but um, that's slightly concerning to me.
2: My confidence is not shaken. I know way more than any of those guys will ever (laughs) know. Of course. Yeah. It's definitely concerning when you hear that from extremely intelligent and knowledgeable people. So fingers crossed that, uh, you know, he's healthy and he gets back on track this year.
1: Yeah, I've had a, like a kind of a roller coaster of emotions the last few weeks with Diaz. Because as Nick noted, we had back-to-back guests on who were clearly much lower on Diaz than we are. But then Diaz will do something to play in spring training, like that triple he had the other day. And I watch that highlight, like, oh, wow, this guy could be really good. And it just comes back to the same question I always have about UCL Diaz, which is when is he finally going to put together a healthy stretch of time in the Orioles farm system? We have not really seen it yet. We didn't get to see it in 2019. Obviously, the pandemic, I think, robbed him of a lot of development time last year. Um, if he can have a healthy two months to start the season out in Norfolk, I think we're going to learn a lot more, good or bad, about him. But he just has to stay healthy.
2: Yeah, that's a key, okay. for sure.
0: It also worried me because I think right after Eric Longenhanger was on, and he mentioned how Diaz had to get him out. You throw high fastballs, and he's he can't catch up to those. And then I noticed his next two at-bats right after that, high fastballs, got him down the strikeout. And so I, I might have cried a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, I did notice that too, actually. Something to watch.
0: Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I, we talked about Westberg, but I think – and we, we also mentioned Braddish. I don't know if you guys want to talk about Braddish a little more. He was four spots higher. He's number 15 on MLB Pipeline's list. We had him on number twenty, but he's part of that big group of Angels prospects that we either haven't seen because there's been no season, or they haven't pitched in professional baseball yet, like Zach Peake, uh, Garrett Stallings, guys we haven't seen at all yet. But Bradish, I think that's great to see. I think we we know some other people out there in the Orioles prospect community, the guys who follow the system, are pretty high on Bradish themselves. Uh, so I think it's it's fun. This is a guy who went straight to High A uh, when he debuted with the Angels. I think that speaks pretty highly of him. And what the angels thought about him strikeouts were there. The walks were high, but that was his debut. So I'm not worried about that yet, but yeah, Bradish I think could be a name that really explodes this year among Orioles fans.
2: Yeah. I think he's a guy that I think if you, you know, after may, I think we're going to have a good gauge of like what his stuff is. We'll be actually be able to watch video of him since he's made any improvements uh, with the Orioles. And I think what is his slider that's known to be really good. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think we'll know pretty quickly once uh, the games get going, you know, how much he's improved and how much he could creep up our rankings.
1: The, the thing that I'll be watching the most is, is his command, because that is one thing that you see on reports that, you know, kind of for is as a question is, is he ever going to be able to have good enough command to stick as a starter? Um, and it feels like that most reports kind of agree that if he doesn't, the Orioles may still have a pretty good reliever on their hands. So Brad is certainly a guy I'm going to watch, especially because, as Nick noted, um, he got to the high A pretty quickly. And high A at that point was California League, which is a notoriously hitter friendly league. And I think he held his own there. So he was a guy that last year, you know, I was expecting would probably be in Bowie. And I thought, you know, if he can cut back on the walks, he's going to move into a better pitcher's environment. Maybe we really even see the numbers, you know, trend upward even more. And the same probably still applies for 2021. I think that's a guy where you're not going to be worried about him. You know, we talked about this earlier with, you know, our player is going to be too old for the level this year. I don't think you are going to have that concern with Bradis at AA. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, if he can cut back on the walks, I know we had him at 20, but if he can drop those walks, he could probably be in that top 10, top 15 range somewhere when we update our list in July, especially the velocity readings that you hear about which are you know, pretty consistently low to mid-90s, sometimes touching the upper 90s, are still there.
0: Yeah, and I think I looked at his numbers earlier today, so I don't remember. But I remember his home run numbers being ridiculously low for being a rookie in high A in a very home run friendly league. So I think that's promising, something else promising to look at. And, and a FIP of like under three or sorry, under four is like three, eight something. So I think those are all great numbers to look at, just stat line scouting for a little bit there. But I think those are all great numbers to look at with Bradish, and see that I think this is a guy that definitely moves up a lot of rankings this year.
2: Yeah, and one thing that's interesting to me is I know it's happening all over the league. It's the new thing where it's like the one skill that you can actually improve is a, and that's increased velocity. But I've noticed with like Stallings and Zach Peake and a bunch of guys with the Orioles have increased their velocity. Bruce Zimmerman, John Means. And it's surprising to me that Drew Rahm is all the way down at 29. With, to me, he is a guy who, if he just puts some muscle in his frame, he could really increase his velocity, creep up towards the mid-90s, at least low 90s. And I, I still uh, have a little more faith in Drew Rom than a lot of people seem to.
0: Yeah, that was the biggest difference among the two lists. MLB Pipeline has him 29th, and we had him 12 spots higher at 17. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned it's... All the reports you see on him are the velocity. If he can increase his velocity, maybe then there's a little bit more there. Uh, we know he can strike guys out, but can he do that at the upper levels? Um, I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, I think he's a guy that when I think about Drew Rom, I think about going back to 2019. We, You looked at guys like Michael Bauman, Brendan Hannafee, and Blaine Knight really needed big years. This was a crucial years for them, and Michael Bauman stepped up in a major way. Brennan Hannafee struggled, and so he's got some work to do to rebound. Uh, but Blaine Knight really fell apart, and I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about Blaine Knight. And so I think Drew Rom is at the top or near the top of that list for 2021, where this is a big year for him.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not surprised if he moves down a list just because, you know, if you're comparing it to last year or even six months ago, the Orioles have brought in more talent, so it stands reason that a guy like Rahm would drop the thing that i just come back to is that he was fairly young for low a when he had that big year in delmarva in 2019 he was 19, yeah yeah and i just wonder now he'll be a 21 year old probably at high a aberdeen if he gets off to a good start there and he finds himself in double a at some point this year he's a young pitcher for double a so i i kind of view rom Moore as a long-term guy where the question is going to be i think you know as you guys kind of said if he doesn't add velocity can he still get guys out? You know, is that command going to be there? Can he generate enough ground balls, avoid hard contact and kind of find success in the way that Zach Lothar, uh, Alexander Wells and Bruce Zimmerman have found at the higher levels of the minor leagues and that they're going to try to take to the majors this year. But, you know, there's a big difference between those type of prospects and the prospects that can throw and more of that 93 to 95 range. Um, but I, I still think Rom. Even if you don't feel like Rahm is as good compared to other prospects in the system as he was this time last year, it's still a guy worth watching this year.
0: Yeah, I think watch Alex Wells, watch Zach Lothar, and see how those guys perform at AAA. And I'm assuming both those guys probably get a taste of the big leagues this year. Uh, we'll see how serious that Alexander Wells oblique is, how long that keeps him off the mound. It sounds like he probably could be ready to go by opening day minor league, you know, it's over a month away still. So still some time for him to get healthy. But I think watch those two guys. And if those two guys have a lot of success early on and do reach the big leagues and are somewhat serviceable at least, I think you can look at Drew Rom in that different light and say Orioles are pretty good at turning soft tossing lefties and in- into valuable pieces. So
2: yeah. Uh, All right. I oh, was ahead, also Bob. I was also just going to say I like seeing Carter Baumler all the way up at twenty three still even with his injury it's just nice to know that uh, people haven't written him off because of that like we didn't either so
1: yeah Baumler hung on on our list he ended up going at number thirty and yeah it's a big risk when you have a guy that is going to miss all of this year with Tommy John surgery you don't know what his rehab process is going to look like. But I, I still have hope in Baumler, and I still thought he was worthy of a top thirty spot on our list. He was on my personal list, and although you know there are some players below him that right now um, I would have ranked ahead of on MLB Pipeline's list, um, I still think that Baumler absolutely is a top thirty prospect. And if MLB Pipeline is confident enough in him to put him twenty third in the fifth best farm system in baseball, that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, and I think it's MLB Pipeline that they kind of tend to shy away from putting the teenage prospects on their their list, or high up on their list uh, as well. So this is a guy who turned down a lot of big offers, I think higher dollar offers, if I'm not mistaken, uh, during the draft to sign with the Orioles when the Orioles came after him. So I think that shows you just how good this kid can be or how good teams think he can be. And uh, with the Orioles being that aggressive for him, they were aggressive for a reason. So I think it's going to be fun. We just got to be really patient with him because it's going to be another year, at least before we get to see him pitch. But I think looking at else, elsewhere, though, I think Ballmer was the MLB pipeline item six spots higher. And the only other major difference, well, there's two. One guy was much lower. But the other guy that was much higher was Ryan McKenna. Ryan McKenna was 16th on MLB Pipeline's list. We had him all the way down at 22. So I'm wondering, I think Eric Loggenhagen had him pretty high. So Seven, I'm right? Yeah, he was top 10 guy in, on Eric Loggenhagen's list. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, this is good that we've kind of talked about him routinely. I think you can bookmark this, that uh, when Ryan McKenna breaks out, we can say we told you so. Uh, we've saying that, a lot of people want to look at his numbers in 2019, I'm trying to think back when was the last time we saw baseball. Uh, the last time Ryan McKenna played at double-A Bowie. a lot of people look at those numbers and say he had a down year, but we've talked about how the offense was suppressed in double-A that year uh, and his numbers are actually still above league average uh, pretty much across the board. So I think this is, it's good. It's good to see everybody still high on him and they're not looking at those numbers in double-A and saying, okay, this is a guy who's fallen off. The Orioles still seem to be high on him. Um, so, I mean, I, skeptical skeptical about saying book market though because last time i said book market it was seth mahias breen was going to be the jake fox award winner and i don't even know if (laughs) he's still alive right now because i haven't heard his name since
2: i saw his name in a box for one time and i think it was (laughs) like he didn't even get in at that cool (laughs) but yeah um yeah that's a good point that's a good point i forgot what i was gonna say
1: I think a lot of it just comes back to McKenna's athleticism. I think a lot of evaluators see a guy who is probably a high floor prospect. The things that have given me pause so far are, you know, what does the bat look like at the higher levels? And is he going to hit enough to get an everyday spot in the majors? And then this is more organizational, but it's a matter of can he actually push his way through this outfield depth, especially if the improvements we saw from Cedric Mullins last year are for real. That said, I still think that we're going to see him in the majors at some point this year, because I think we're just going to see a lot of players who are cycled through um, out of the minor leagues because the major league rosters will need more help this year. And the fact is that McKenna's already got that 40-man roster spot, which gives him a leg up over a lot of players. So if the Orioles have a need for an extra outfielder, um, even if it's early in the year, McKenna, I'd have to think, would be one of the first guys that would look at.
0: I'm wondering as well, too, think about the trade deadline. You know, if Cedric Cedric Mullins continues to hit as well as he's hitting, I'm I'm happy to see Cedric Mullins play the way he has this spring. Uh, And Austin Hayes stays healthy. And Ryan McKenna is also playing well at Norfolk. Is Ryan McKenna traded at some point this year? Is he thrown into a deal to sweeten a pot? Because you already have two guys. And if you're going to move an outfielder, you know, McKenna's is going to have the higher value I think than Cedric Mullins and I don't think you want to trade Austin Hayes right now if he's playing well obviously so I think maybe that might be something to keep an eye on too I don't think the Orioles are in that they're not haven't reached that Padres position yet of being able to dump farm system guys for major league
2: talent yet but we're starting to see a little bit of crowd in this so maybe, maybe maybe not I don't know yeah it's a good point I mean Santander I think would be the first guy that you would trade, obviously, but at the same time, if DS comes up, they want to keep Mountcastle and left. It's still a crowded outfield, even if Santander goes at some point, so unless you trade Mancini and Santander, move uh, Mountcastle to first, that kind of opens up a spot, but it's a lot of moving parts. Um, I do feel like you hear some good comments from Brandon Hyde about McKenna. It seems like he's holding his own, you know, really showing off what he can do, especially with the glove and his speed uh, during the spring training, so I do think he gets a shot at some point between injuries and trades. So we'll see if uh, I feel like I thought we were going to be high on him at 22. And now it seems like we're the low guys, but uh, it'll be interesting to see.
1: Yeah. So that, that's a good overview. I think kind of of how our rankings compared MLB pipelines, um, at least in terms of where our differences are. And certainly once we're a few months into the minor league season, We'll have a sense of, you know, where these players really are in their development. Um, Before we kind of wind things down here and tease our next show, we have talked about a lot tonight. So I'll start with Nick. Any final thoughts?
0: I mean, I think it's like Bob mentioned a few times. It's going to be really interesting to watch the minor leagues and how all these rule changes shake out. And not only are we watching guys try to get back into full-time baseball shape. But at the same time, we're watching them going to have to adjust to new rules uh, at different levels. So that will certainly be fun to watch. Um, you know, the the, sci- the the news of this international complex is absolutely amazing. I'm still loving that. Still, I might have gone back uh, at least once today and watched the video again. I think Kobe Perez is the underrated MVP of this organization now. I don't think he gets talked about enough. Um and you mentioned this was pretty much the last list I think that's going to come out uh, before the season starts. So it's it's great that I think a lot of people are – there's consensus on guys like McKenna and, uh, and others in this organization that they're high. Guys like Grayson Rodriguez are viewed as legitimate top of the rotation candidates. D.L. Hall, there might be questions there about starter or reliever, but there's no doubt that everybody views him as an elite pitching prospect. And it's – we're almost there. We're almost to a minor league season where we finally get to watch these guys play. And it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun.
2: For sure, yeah. I'm just hyped up for the season. We're a little over a week away. Uh, I'm just excited to get baseball going on a daily basis. Get the minor league season in a month later. We'll enjoy the grind, and you know we'll have fun talking about it every week, every Wednesday here on the one on the verge. And also wanted to take a second to plug another podcast. Uh, if you like our podcast in the minor leagues. Uh, focus on the Orioles. I would recommend Baseball America's Future Projection podcast, which uh, covers more about things in general. But it's they go a long time and and uh, they get into some good stuff between you know college, minor leagues, international, all the all the stuff we love. So if you're looking for another podcast, I would check them out.
1: So on next week's show, we're going to have yet another predictions episode. Uh, this one is going to focus on the Major League season, but we are going to kind of take a prospect bend. Some of the questions you hear might be recycled from our original predictions, so last July. Others, though, are probably going to be brand new, and we'll be working on that uh, while we're off the air over the next week. In the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at PSL on the Verds. Visit com for all of the latest uh, Marts Madness, Orioles, and Ravens coverage and be sure to hop on the message board and check out the other podcasts that are part of uh, Baltimore Sports & Life Radio. So for Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan, this has been Zach Spedden, and you're listening to On the Verge. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now, and the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.